Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Nick Augustine, and I'm your host on this episode of Law Talk Radio, produced by ProServe PR Marketing, a PR firm serving clients in Chicagoland and Southern California. Please show your support for our programming by visiting and clicking the like button on our Law Talk Radio Facebook page, and you'll find links to a variety of episodes you can share with your friends. Don't forget that you can listen to any of our episodes on demand, and you can find those at the radio show page located at ProServePR.com. Support for Law & Money Talk radio programming comes from Chris McCarthy of Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and disability insurance policies. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Today's show is Audit and Tax Issues with Attorney Robert McKenzie of Arnstein & Lair. Despite your best efforts at diligently filing proper tax returns, the IRS can audit your tax returns, and and Robert McKenzie is a tax attorney who can help sort out the mess. Sometimes the audit results are worse than expected, and other times, with proper representation, the process can be least intrusive. In this episode of Law Talk Radio, we'll examine tax law from several different perspectives. Our guest, Robert McKenzie, is a partner of the law firm of Arnstein & Lair LLP in Chicago, Illinois, concentrating his practice in representation before the Internal Revenue Service and state agencies. He has lectured extensively on the subject of taxation. He has presented courses before thousands of CPAs, attorneys, and enrolled agents nationwide. Prior to entering private practice, Mr. McKenzie was employed by the Internal Revenue Service Collection Division in Chicago, Illinois from 1972 to 1978, and he's a noted authority and media source on IRS and tax-related issues, and he continues to be featured in national and international news stories. We have a great show, and we want to welcome two callers this afternoon. Your calls are welcome at area code 917-889-9732, then press option 1 to be placed in our caller queue. That telephone number again is 917-889-9732. Short disclaimer, want to remind you this is a general information and entertainment-based program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Communication with licensed attorneys on our shows does not create client relationships, and ProServe PR marketing does not necessarily endorse all the opinions expressed by guests. Finally, all callers are confidential and rights to this broadcast are reserved. Topics we're going to cover on this show, just a taste here. First, in our first segment, we'll cover red flags and how to back up your return so a red flag doesn't prompt an audit. Then we'll talk in the second segment about first steps to take upon receipt of an audit notification and how to start making a plan. Then in our third segment, we'll talk about the IRS review procedure and what most audited taxpayers can expect. Fourth, in our final segment, we'll talk about representation before the IRS and courts and uh, talk about what happens when things are going well versus not going so well. In our first segment, our first 15 minutes, uh, we'll give a brief overview of our roadmap for the show for this evening. We'll kind of hit on all four points real quickly and then uh, drill down into the finer points. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest, Robert McKenzie. Hi, Nick. How you doing? I'm doing well, and I want to thank you for your time on this uh, sunny Tuesday evening. It's uh, nice weather outside, and I, I'm so glad that you uh, stuck around to uh, help us out with sorting out some uh, rather unpopular issues in tax. And I know that as we're a month out from uh, tax deadlines, uh, this is an issue that's on many people's minds. Well, the, the one good thing is the chance of an audit is not huge for the average taxpayer the chance of an audit is about 1.1%. So you have to be somewhat unlucky to become audited. You also can be stupid and become audited by doing the wrong things on your return or, or, as you noted, red flags. But the general tax return does not get a lot of scrutiny by the IRS with that low percentage of audits. Now, the one thing to note also, though, is that's a doubling of the rate of audit from just eight years ago. So the IRS has been increasing its levels of audit of all taxpayers. You know, Bob, I have a question. I've heard from some people before, and maybe this is just a, a myth, that the IRS uh, procedure and the IRS activity in auditing people is more of a, an alert and a scare tactic than an actual revenue producer, and that it's an actually a loss leader. Um, you know, I don't know if there's any truth to that, but I, I've heard word on the street about that. 
Um, I've also heard from people, and this is just a general run of things that I hear, is that um, if your returns are, are in line with what is expected, usually um, you shouldn't have a problem. And you know, But I also talk to a lot of sole practitioners like myself who are concerned uh, with just their you know, status of having especially home-based businesses and, and other things. I, I guess there's a lot of just myths out there about what triggers and what doesn't trigger an audit. So I look forward to uh, learning more. Uh, why don't you, if you could quickly, um, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you've developed your areas of expertise. Okay. Uh, well, I started with the IRS and, and worked there for six and a half years, received training from the IRS, and I actually collected taxes versus doing audits. But I was trained by the IRS and I was a collector. I attended law school for the last two years. I was with the IRS, then quit my job and finished law school uh, on my own full time. I entered directly into private practice with my wife with our own small firm and we practiced with up to about six other lawyers in our firm over a period of over 20 years. And then we moved to Arnstein and Lear, where I've been for the last 12 years and within a bigger environment. That's a 150-member firm. And we currently are at 150 members. And I have a little group of tax controversy lawyers. There's six of us here, and we do tax disputes of all levels. That includes representing people who are in audit, representing people who owe large sums of taxes or even medium sums of taxes the IRS, and those lucky enough to have two gun-carrying accountants from the IRS arrive and give them Miranda warnings because they allegedly have committed a crime when they um, filed their tax return, or in some cases where they failed to file. Now, and um, I, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. Didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, I, I want to just mention some of the myths out there. First of all, auditing is very profitable to the IRS. They get about a 10 to 1 return on the cost of their enforcement budget versus auditing and collection activities. And last year alone, auditing brought in over $16 billion to the IRS by auditing people. And they only had a budget for their audit function of about $2 billion. So it's one of the profit centers in government. The more people the IRS audits, actually, the more money the government takes in. And right now in Congress, there's a move to cut the IRS budget by up to $600 million. And the IRS commissioner has testified that if his budget were to be cut by the amount currently proposed, there'd be a $4 billion decrease in revenue into the government. So there's only one part of government that makes a profit, and that's the IRS. And any money invested in the IRS, particularly in enforcement, gets a direct return to the taxpayers. So that's a, a totally false myth. Hmm. And go ahead with your question. Hmm. Um, I, I, well, one of the questions that I had was people who lose uh, information. I think that sometimes, especially small business owners, who are late in filing taxes really fear penalties, and so sometimes a problem is just not having all the all the information collected. Um, uh, you know, but then you, I suppose, you may balance that with filing a return that's not complete and filing an amended. Uh, so you know, we are just so interested in hearing some of your best practices well, and tips. Well, first of all, filing late is really expensive. The rate for not filing late is 5% per month, up to 25% of the taxes owed. So the first thing to know is you can get an automatic extension. So if you come to April 15th, or this year it's April 17th, take an extension. And even if you can't pay what you think you might owe on April 17th this year, if you take an, accept, uh, an extension, you won't be penalized for the 5% a month penalty up to 25%. Um, so that's the first step to take if you do not have all your records. Then secondly, once you reach that October 15th date, if you haven't found every record, you're better to file a return and put a disclaimer on as to what you had to do to estimate it and then certainly make every effort to finally get the correct records and file an amended return. 
it's certainly ideal to finally find those records by October 15th so that you don't have to come back and amend a return because, frankly, when you amend a return, you do increase your chance of audit. Anytime there's another set of eyes looking at your tax returns at the IRS, there's a greater chance there might be an audit. Now, what are some other uh, chances that we're going to have an audit, such as these red flags that I talked about earlier? Well, it, the IRS does one thing that almost automatically creates an audit, and that's they do a matching between information documents and your return. So someone who leaves off a 1099 from their income on their interest or dividends, if it reaches several thousand dollars, it's almost certain that there's going to be a contact from the IRS. Uh, someone who doesn't report all of their W-2 income, the IRS gets reports from the employers. Um, they generally have all that data assembled within about eight to nine months after it arrives. And so if I file a return and I do not include the 1099 from my brokerage firm where I sold a stock, uh, the IRS computer system will match the database for 1099s and my income tax return and find that I failed to report that item and uh, they'll send me a notice that I'm being audited for that. So that's a peer document matching, and it's just a rote type of process that the IRS know. If I forget a $200 item, probably they will not audit me just for that because it's not profitable. They're looking for profit in each of these audits. But if I forget a several thousand dollar item, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, other things, if I take a very large deduction in comparison to my income, the computer is programmed to look at the average taxpayer in your geographic area as to their average deductions given their income status, and that will create higher scores for audits. So let's take an example. If I make 200000 a year and I claim $50,000 a year for home interest expense, I probably can afford that nice home if I have a $200,000 a year income. So, yes, I'm taking a very large deduction for home interest, but in comparison to my income, it's nothing, not a significant item. Now, let's take the same item, that $50,000 deduction, and say that I earned 70000 this year. The computer's going to wonder how I could possibly manage my affairs so that I could pay 50000 in interest and also live my lifestyle. It could be that I'm um, able to do so because I have savings and other significant assets so I can pay the liability. But the other side of it could be that maybe I'm not telling the truth. So when they see that large deduction in comparison to income, you're going to see much more great, greater chance of audit. Other items that the computer raises a lot of clues on is significant charitable deductions. Now, it could be that I'm a very charitable person, or it could be maybe I'm not telling the truth. So when I make charitable deductions that begin to exceed what the average person in my income bracket might take, that's going to cause an alert and raise the chance of audit. Third red flag, large deductions for miscellaneous expenses. You see things like uh, the kindergarten teacher who thinks that her trip to Europe will enrich her students and therefore she writes off the expenses, a teacher-related expense as a miscellaneous expense. You see people who have business-related expenses and they're employed taking large deductions there. So absolutely that will be a red flag. If we move over to the attorneys who are listening to this, if you're self-employed, you automatically greatly enhance your chance of audit if you file a Schedule C. Uh, the IRS audits about 1.1% of all returns, but it uh, will audit returns showing between $100,000 and $200,000 in gross income about 4 to 5% of the time each year. And that's because they found that the accuracy rate on self-employed returns is much less than when somebody gets a W-2. So automatically by being self-employed, you increase your chance of audit. If you want to really increase your chance of audit, have expenses that are disproportionate 
to your income level and your particular profession. When you file a tax return, it says what is your business category on Schedule C. So if I list that I'm in the legal profession, and then let's say I show $150,000 in income, and I claim $50,000 cost of goods sold, it would seem that that would be extraordinarily expensive since all we have is paper as, as a product as lawyers. We don't have cost of goods sold. I also can get into um, a problem if I have cost as a sole proprietor that exceed 50% of my income. So if I have 150000 in income and I'm claiming 100000 in expenses, that's out of the ordinary. The IRS actually uh, uses statistics to show that the average person, a, a lawyer and a sole proprietor, will have about 50% of his income will be expenses. And when your expenses begin rising above that, it could all be accurate, or it could be maybe you're overestimating some of your in expenses, or on the other side, maybe you're declaring accurately all your expenses but not reporting all of your income. So each of those are red flags. First, I, I automatically increase my chance of audit by being self-employed, but then if I am having expenses that exceed the norm, I'm much more likely to be audited by the IRS. A question I have, um, based on uh, some things that you just mentioned, matching the expectations of the IRS with what uh, your filing uh, represents, um, I've heard accountants say that it's a good practice to order transcript copies from the IRS so that you have a, an idea of what they believe your file should contain. Um, what's the what's the best practice there? Well, the best practice is to keep good quality records, and certainly pulling up the transcript of 1099s and W-2s will prevent you missing something that's a red flag already the IRS. The problem would be that if I'm filing a return in April, the IRS database for 2011 returns probably is not fully complete. So that most providers of 1099s and W-2s issue them by February 1st. But if they come in on a paper return as opposed to electronically, the IRS doesn't post those immediately. They're busy posting paper tax returns, so that database is not going to be complete by the time I ordered. If I ordered in March, for example, it's highly unlikely that every 1099 is recorded by the IRS. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Some good red flags to watch out for. We're going to pause for a short uh, message break for some upcoming events, and then we'll be back with Bob McKenzie and talk in our second segment about some of the first steps to take if you do receive an audit notification and how to start making a plan. I want to let you know that the third session of the Get More Clients and Grow Your Practice series takes place on Wednesday, March 28th at 7 Central, 5 Pacific, and the content uh, or the Content is a topic, actually. It's developing and leveraging organic content. You can join this teleconference and follow along with the PowerPoint as Jim Thompson and I teach PR marketing to lawyers and other business professionals. You can find the information on the workshops page at ProServePR.com. Jim and I agreed to offer the first three courses free with a suggested donation of $25, but after the March event, our free offer terminates, and we will be uh, charging $25 per session per course, uh, again, with the hope that those out there who are interested in learning more about do-it-yourself public relations and marketing for your law practice or business will uh, join up and learn with us uh, some really great uh, information. And again, we're going to be talking about developing and leveraging organic content. Again, that's Wednesday, March 28th, 7 Central, 5 Pacific. Also want to let you know quickly about Nancy Minard's upcoming event. Uh, it's all about the best interest of the child and changes made to the recent uh, best interest of the child uh, law here in Illinois. You can register today and secure your spot 
uh, Let It Limited puts on the event, and they always feature top-tier family law practitioners and experts, uh, again, on this topic for the best interests of the child and updates in Illinois family law. This is an acclaimed Let It Limited series offered by Nancy Minard, well-known for being informative and interactive, uh, offering these learning experiences. This is a 6.5 MCLE, I'm sorry, 6.25 MCLE credit in professional responsibility. Now, those ethics credits are not always easy to find, so you can get all your ethics credits knocked out in one day. Uh, It's coming on March uh, 16th, Uh, so there's still time to register. Again, Nancy Leaded Limited produces a series. Nancy Leaded at gmail.com for more information. That's N-A-N-C-Y. L-E-D-D-E-D at gmail.com. Now back to our program with with uh, Bob McKenzie from Arnstein and Lair. Bob, we talked a little bit about some red flags in the beginning of the show. Now for our second segment, let's talk a little bit about what you should do if you receive an audit notification, how it, the process works when you receive that, and what best practices are in responding and collecting uh, information, and uh, who you should call, and whether you should call uh, someone, or is this something that most lawyers can handle themselves? Okay, let's break it down, though. You, you could have three different types of audit by the IRS, the least intrusive and the one where there's very little touching by the IRS are correspondence audits. And of the 1.6 million audits that the IRS did during 2011, 1.2 million of them were merely correspondence, where a letter was issued as a result of a computer identifying a problem on your return. Some are as simple as you didn't report that 1099 and they asked for a response. Others will be at a level where they say, we want support for your itemized deductions on your Schedule A. Please tell us why you did this. Or the letter actually could ask for the receipts for your Schedule C small business. The next level of audit is more intrusive. That will be an office audit, and in that case you'll get a letter saying, please call us to set an appointment and come into our office to talk with us. Those usually run three to four hours are obviously more intrusive than a correspondence audit, and you're face-to-face with the IRS. And then the third most intense exam will be the field audit. Now, those are done by the most highly qualified people at the IRS, the revenue agents. They all have accounting credentials, and um, they may take up to 20 or 30 hours to audit your returns, and the other distinction is normally they will audit three years. So start with one year and expand it to three years of audit. So if you're going to be unlucky enough to be audited, you generally would hope for a correspondence audit because it's less intensive. Now, on the flip side, when you write a letter to the IRS responding to a correspondence audit, you're not writing to a tax professional. You're writing to a clerical employee who may or may not comprehend your response or may not fully understand its import. So, first thing, you're going to get that letter. If it's a letter saying, please respond in 30 days to a correspondence audit, you want to try to compose and get all the information together and respond in 30 days. If you can't, you should call and ask for more time and then fax a response specifically stating that you've been given an extension. So step one, call, get the time, extra time. They usually give you another 30 days. And step two is to write a letter confirming that, fax it to the IRS. If it's, a correspond- if it's an audit to come into the IRS audit office, you will call and get an appointment to come in. If it's a field audit, the first thing I would like to say is you'd be really naive to have them come out to your office or home. So I think you need a representative. The Internal Revenue Code provides that you have the right to a representative when you are in an audit. And in that case, I see all types of problems with having the IRS come into somebody's business place, be it their office or their home, because there's all types of visual clues. There's uh, They get to see how you operate and it could lead to more questions just by seeing what's going on in your office. You're much better served to have 
the audit at your accountant's office or at your attorney's office, depending on the level of risk that you see. Any other questions on that, Nick? Mm, no. Um, what uh, What are other? Th- this is very interesting. Um, a lot of this is new information for me. Um, wh- so, when you looking for an attorney, how do you know? Well, I suppose if you get the field audit, that's a, a pretty good idea that you should obtain counsel. Um, what about the office audit? Well, the office audit. Part of it is if you believe that your records are not complete. I believe you're better served by having a representative. And just to um, get into it, there's an old joke about an IRS employee. When is an IRS auditor trying to trap you? And the answer to the question is her lips are moving. So um, if you're in there by yourself uh, and you're answering their questions, if, in fact, you misrepresent facts, Lying to a federal official can be a felony offense, just ask Martha Stewart. And um, so the bottom line is, if you believe there's problems with that return, I, I would expect that you would want to have your accountant or attorney attend. Now, if you think you have good records, that your return was done in a good faith manner, and you don't believe there's any significant problems with it, go to the audit then. Certainly an attorney is qualified to represent themselves, but it's a risky proposition if, in fact, there are problems with that return. And um, many times going in and having confession time with the IRS is not great. And when you do arrive at the uh, IRS audit, one of the first questions at an office audit is, have you reported all income required to be reported under law on your return and let's say perchance you haven't you have two choices you can answer truthfully and say yes I underreported my income and this is how I did it uh, that also could be known as a confession if that's a significant item or if you chose not to tell the truth you answered uh, negatively no I've reported all income and that was not the truth, and it was later discovered that you misstated the truth, then you could face much more significant problems than just a bill from the IRS. So um, if I'm there and I know that my client has not reported all of her income, I can say when asked that question, I'm not able to answer that question. And now that's totally truthful on my part. I know my client hasn't reported the income, but I say I'm not able to answer that question. What am I saying? Essentially, I'm saying the attorney-client privilege prevents me from answering that question. But uh, I have not in any way misstated the truth. But I can't see how a taxpayer, be it an attorney or anyone else who's at an audit, and they ask, have you reported all income required to be reported by law in the return? Uh, how can Peckford then say, I can't answer that question? Uh, it's a very difficult situation to be in, but you're going to get that question at every audit when you go person to person. You know, it, it seems to me that a, a response from could quite very reasonably truthfully be, I'm not sure. I hope so. I believe to the best of my knowledge I've reported all my income. Um, well, what if, it, what if that's not the case, though, Nick? What if I know that I received that $5,000 cash fee from a client that I didn't put on the books? Now, what I, would I say in response to that question? Well, if you if would you not real, if it's a knowledge if it's a knowledgeable misstatement, you know that's another story. But um, I can I'm just thinking of people I the people I know who've had problems before with um, with audits have had more difficulties with not being able to ascertain all their receipts and all their um, all their revenues just just because of the pains of being a solo. Um, and a lot of people say, I've heard a lot of people say, I believe, you know, I think that I have everything here, but it's possible I could have missed something. I mean, it just seems like a reasonable. That's a good faith answer. Yeah. If that answer is in good faith, absolutely. If mm-hmm. it's in good faith. Yeah, you know, another question that pops up when we're talking about this um, what about the ARDC? Uh, what, what, what connection, if any, are you aware of with, 
with duty to uh, report to the ARDC and audits. I mean, do they need to know that? Well, no, I don't have to report audits to the ARDC if I come under criminal investigation and am charged and plead to a crime. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I have to notify the ARDC, and the, they generally uh, require some degree of suspension after somebody takes a tax conviction. But just being audited, it's a civil matter. It doesn't necessarily reflect on your honesty. It could be that you're just a bad record keeper. Um, there are times where it's risky. I represented an attorney uh, a couple years ago who had invaded his client funds account while operating his practice. And in that case, we had substantial dangers because were the IRS to find that type of conduct and, and claim that he had invaded that trust, it could also lead to disciplinary problems, obviously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, IOLTA accounts are certainly something to keep a uh, good watch on. Um, any other thoughts on first steps uh, as far as collecting? And when you know, when you say that, that when you let's say it's a correspondence audit and you're sending something in, it's a government agency. I suppose it's like dealing with um, immigration or some of the other government agencies. You have to attach everything in the right format give them simple uh, answers. Is it a best practice to uh, make a short answer with attached exhibits, or is there uh, a good format that, you know, some people are... You usually write a cover... Yeah, no, just go ahead. Go ahead. You write a cover letter? We usually write a cover letter, and we specifically, if it's a small amount of information we're supplying, we attach it. If it's substantial amounts, we literally bind it into a clear coat um, binder. We'll take it over to a um, copy center and have it copied and bound. And the reason is is that it avoids the IRS losing documents. So we do a clear coat cover. Our letter is right under the clear coat saying, Dear IRS, this is in response to your audit of. Uh, exhibit number one is their original notice. And then we have a table of contents for each of the supporting documents, the receipts for this, the receipts for that, and we sub- submit it in that manner. The reason we've moved to that is we found that when we just attach a large bun- bundle of 100 pages or 200 pages of documents, it's not unlikely that it will be lost in the IRS Compliance Center, and then you'll end up with a claim you didn't supply the documents. So. Uh, Having had that experience over a lot of years of practice, we know if it's five or ten pages, we'll send it all with the letter. If it's a large group of documents, they're organized in a nice fashion and then they're referenced within our letter. Mm-hmm. Makes sense to maybe bait stamp it as well. It certainly would. Mm-hmm. We're going to pause for another uh, quick identification of an event coming up. Again, this is from Nancy Minard. Uh, I want to tell you again, this is a good way for you to get all of your professional responsibility credits for a two-year cycle all in one day, and this is for family law attorneys. Again, the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism approved the substance of the refocusing custody issues on the best interests of the child for 6.25 professional responsibility hour credits. Uh, The event is on March 16th, uh, 2012. That's later this week. Again, uh, it's a good way to refocus family law issues on the child, whether you're a litigator, a child's representative, a mediator, a collaborative law fellow, or a collateral support person, or an individual with clients who have special needs children. This is a program uh, is a must for attorneys who handle parentage cases as well as divorce cases here in Illinois. Again, you can get more information by directly emailing Nancy Minard at nancyledded at gmail.com, which is N-A-N-C-Y-L-E-D-D-E-D at gmail.com to enroll today. All right, now back to our discussion with Bob McKenzie. We talked in our first segment about red flags and how to uh, prepare things uh, and back up your return so that you don't uh, cause red flags to go off. Then we talked a little bit in our second segment about some first steps to take uh, when you receive an audit notification. We talked about the three types of audits, correspondence audits, office audits, and field audits. Now in our third segment, uh, Bob, if you could leave, uh, lead us through uh, some procedure um, after these, uh, after things are received and after you've met with uh, your 
either the field agents or the response, what are next steps that most people um, will see? Is it just are you going to get a letter that says you owe this or, um, you know, and at what point do we get involved with court and, uh, you know, what happens when things go, we'll talk a little bit more in our fourth segment, but um, what can people reasonably expect after they've made, made their effort well, to it, fully comply? Well, if, if if you do the correspondence audit and if they fully comprehend what you've sent and if it's complete, you may just get in a letter saying thank you. Your return is going to be accepted as filed. What is more likely is that they will either say we'll accept part of what you gave us, but we don't accept it all, therefore we're proposing some amount of new liability or they could, in some cases, say, we don't believe this is sufficient. We're going to disallow this particular item or this portion of some item. Now, if there is a disagreement, the IRS's next step on a correspondence audit will be to send you a letter saying, this is our proposed amount that you owe, and you are allowed to appeal within 30 days. And it's an administrative appeal. Of the 1.6 million people who were audited last year, about 140,000 of them did file an appeal. And the good thing is, is about 80 to 85% of the time, people reach a resolution without further need to litigate or anything else when the IRS does an audit. Uh, so, one, you may just agree if they're right, if they say they disallowed part of it, and you say, hey, this is not too bad. I'll pay the liability. You agree to it, sign an agreement, and that's over with. Now, at the office audit, it's a little different. You sit there at the desk. The person will interview you, look at your documents when you sit there, and then at the conclusion of a few hours of queries and questions and answers, they will write up a report, which they present to you and ask you to agree to it. If you believe it's a fair report, you'll sign the agreement, and that's it. If you don't agree, you'll tell them, I disagree. Uh, they then will have to send you a letter giving you 30 days once again to go to an appeal if you disagree with the auditor. And some people say, well, won't they dislike me if I disagree with them? Well, if you, <laughs> that's part of their job. People don't always agree. Sometimes you'll get personality cases at the IRS where they will send you a notice for more than what they're offering you for you to sign at that moment. My view is it's no big deal because even if they raise the price, you do have a right of appeal and you're going to take that right. So let's say they offered to settle with you for $5,000 extra tax. You said, no, I'm not willing to do that. I have seen tax auditors increase the amount and say, okay, then I'm going to disallow more. I'm giving you a break. Here's a $10,000 bill. And the answer is, okay, do your best shot because you have a right of appeal. With revenue agents, the process is very similar, just that it's a longer process because they will spend much more time reviewing your records. There will be many more conferences to settle it than just a few hours. So in that case, you may have a meeting They'll look at your records. They'll say, well, we don't agree with this, and they'll give you more time to submit more records. So the process goes on for months, and you usually can start at one place and move to a different one in a um, field audit. One of the things they do in a field audit that you should be prepared for, though, is they're going to go to all of your bank statements with a bank deposits method to try to determine how much money went into your accounts. And the problem will be that we have interbank transfers. Let's say I maintain a checking account for my practice and a second checking account for my personal expenses. Well, obviously, to get money into my personal account, I'm transferring it over to, from my business account. And when they do a bank deposits method, you have to make sure that they do not claim that money going into my personal account is counted a second time as income. So it takes a review of their worksheet to see if they're giving you proper credit for what was truly income and what was just a transfer between respective accounts. 
Well, that's that's a fun thing to have uh, <laughs> to have uh, income doubly uh, imputed against you. I, again, I you know a good practice I always think is writing checks, making copies. Um, you know, I was glad I, I grew up in. Um, Grew up in family law where we made copies of everything and uh, <laughs> building paper trails is is that what we did? Um, so that's a, you know again very good to keep good and accurate records. A question um, that I have from what you just shared with us is when they are advising you, well when they're telling you that they have they're going to offer you five thousand um, and you can agree or disagree, what? If anything, do they need to by law disclose to you, or can you know, or is it a situation where, let's say, a police officer arrives at the door and says, "Can I come in?" They don't have to, you know, they don't have to tell you, you know, if you consent and let them in, boom, they're in. But you don't have to consent and let that officer in. Is there a similar, are there similar constitutional protections um, in the IRS code? Well, you don't have to let the IRS into your home. So if you're working out of your home, you don't have to let them in. Now, they might say that's non-cooperation, but the reality is you don't have to let them in your home. You don't have to let them into your premises or your practice. But if you take that attitude of, no, you can't come in, uh, the IRS may just say, okay, we're going to disallow everything. If you have a representative, then they can't do that. They have to agree to go to your representative's office mm-hmm. to do the audit. So that's the one constitution. You don't have. If you believe you've done significantly things wrong on your return, to the level that it may be viewed as a crime by the IRS, then the constitution certainly applies with respect to the Fifth Amendment. And I've had clients who, after meeting with me in my office, uh, it was my choice that I would not present them to the IRS. You do not have to go to the IRS with your representative. The IRS, by law, must deal with your representative if they want to meet with you. If you decline, the only way they can force that is by serving a summons, which then can be enforced in federal court. But when my clients do receive a summons when I'm representing them, and if I know they have risk, we decline to... Um, speak. We bring the client to the summons date. My client sits there with his three by five card and says, I'd really like to answer that question, but my attorney has instructed me to invoke my constitutional rights. I'm sorry, I can't answer that question. And we've had times where my clients have sat there for four hours and said that. Mm-hmm. Well, the IRS asked question after question, but if you believe you have serious problems, yes, your constitutional rights apply. There are statutory rights before the IRS can assess a liability. You either have to agree to it or you, in every case where there's an audit, you have a right to have a judge review the case before a final determination is made. But the, there's an administrative appeal right that is normally given. This what I mentioned in the past, the 30-day letters. So once again, if you think the amount is fair, you just agree. If you believe it's unfair, there's nothing to force agreement. If you think that they're disallowing items that should not be disallowed, if they're imputing income that you don't think appropriately as income that should be taxable to you, if they're objecting to your particular expenses for an item, you can certainly go up on appeal. Very interesting. Let's move to what happens when things get bad. Tell us some more stories. Okay, well, things can go badly. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, I've had clients who, once they do get chosen for audit, the IRS uses a lot of sources of information that you may not think they have. They have a database that they subscribe to, which has all the publicly available information out there on clients. They are instructed, if they're doing a field audit, to do a Internet search on each person. So... Uh, the type of thing that might cause a problem is if you were claiming modest income and they do an Internet search and find your Facebook uh, picture where you're standing next to your new Porsche, uh, you certainly are going to have more problems. But even less than that, if they arrive knowing that you have a registered Mercedes-Benz, a late model Mercedes-Benz, 
they have from public databases the value of your home pursuant to the local assessor and the taxes that you're paying on it. They have your credit bureau report as to the payments on your house and your other debts and what you're paying on those. And with that type of data, it makes it so they arrive forearmed with a lot of information about you, your car, your other assets. They'll know if you have an airplane registered with the FAA. They'll know if you have a boat of more than 19 feet long that's registered with the Coast Guard. Um, and they call this a part of looking at the taxpayer's lifestyle. So in a case of a field audit, they not only have your bald return, they have this view of you based upon all of the data out there in credit bureaus and in public domain. So knowing that, that gives them the ability to have things go terribly wrong. So I represented an attorney a few years ago who was an estate planner. He was a solo practitioner. He had a paralegal and a secretary and another office staffer. But he was claiming income of about 400000 a year from his practice. And his net income, though, was about 70000 a year. And when I, he, he knew he had problems. He knew that he'd made some significant mistakes on that return, so he hired me. So when we appeared, the first thing that the agent asked was, why is it your client drives a Land Rover and his wife uh, has a Mercedes-Benz when he's only making 70000 a year? And I've looked at the Lake County records, and his home is assessed at $350,000, and I see he has a $250,000 mortgage, so he's able to pay the taxes in Lake County on a $350,000 home. He's got this substantial mortgage that he's paying, and he's doing this all with two children and $70,000 a year income. How is he managing to hold his money? Though? I'm sorry, I'm choking a little bit. And I'm then like, the no. next question, <laughs> and then to move a little no further down the line, yeah, and, and the next thing, thing down the line is, why are his expenses so high? He brought in $400,000. Why is he? Why does he have such a cost structure? Now, to get us to the bottom line, that agent obviously was sensitized that there's something seriously wrong with this return. And sure enough, the client in this case was deducting the college expenses for both of his children as a business expense, and he was just showing it as educational expense generally on his records. And so he had two kids in college with room and board, and that was getting rid of over $40,000 a year of his profits right there. Mm. He also had uh, rather aggressively deducted the cars, not uh, accounting for any personal use of the vehicles. He'd written the entire amount off as a business expense. And... Um, of course, the Land Rover did not, because it was over 6,000 pounds gross weight, he wasn't limited to the luxury car deductions that you would have with a regular car. He was um, claiming uh, much higher depreciation on that. So all of those things led to it, but the reason the agent was fully sensitized is he just doesn't take much common sense to say you have a nice home, you have nice cars, and you're only making 70000 a year, how are you doing that? So that's part of what goes on here is just pure common sense from the IRS agent once they arrive. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had clients who were inappropriately taking expenses. Uh, I represented a medical doctor a few years ago who was making 500000 a year as a doctor, but he also had a lot of rental properties and he was claiming the losses from the rental properties. Now, for people who make significant income, when you have losses on real, on real estate, you're supposed to just take passive losses, which means you can't deduct it against your income. In the year you make it, you have to carry it over, and when you do sell the property, then you can use the losses to offset the profits. Uh, this doctor, though, was taking the full losses from his rental properties because he felt he could prove the standard, which is he spent more than 750 hours a year managing his properties, and it was more than 50% of his time was in property management, not in practicing medicine. 
uh, well, the IRS didn't find it to be believable that somebody who can practice medicine and make 500000 a year could find the time to spend more time managing buildings and taking these losses than he could uh, practice in medicine. So that became the dispute. But, uh, amazing, amazing. Bob, can I ask caught? you to hold for one second? We've got, a, I think this is our, um, our our friend Nancy calling in. Nancy, is that you out there? It is indeed. Good evening. Hi, hi. We just wanted to, Bob, this is Nancy Minard. Nancy Minard, Bob, hello. say hello. Are you there, Bob? Hi, Nancy. How you doing? I'm, I'm doing getting fine. ready for this seminar on Friday. Nancy, tell us a little bit more about it real quickly, because uh, I've been talking about this for some time, and it's nice to hear it from you directly. Well, I'm very excited about what we're doing on Friday. It's kind of a unique seminar. It's an all-day seminar divided into two separate and freestanding parts. The first is the best interests of the child as a foundation for what we're doing in the afternoon, which may relate a lot to your listeners. Uh, we're going to talk about the resources and the stakeholders in because it is a family law basic course um, that goes into determining where a child should live and some of the key issues to custody agreements. But then in the afternoon, we're talking about special needs children and the things that family lawyers need to know when a, a child with special needs is caught in the crosshairs of a divorce, setting up the special needs trust to make sure that in case of inheritance that the child does not lose the resources that they badly need to taxes. And we've discovered that it is a very, very complex issue and we are pleased that we're going to have two different kinds of case managers. We're going to have a banking uh, guardian trustee. We have a guardian ad litem coming who is um, the attorney for the minor child. And we've noticed that there are some very big differences between family law and uh, probate law in this case of guardianship. Now, the other thing is we have a wonderful woman who has helped me put this together from Pet Bloom, who is involved in creating the trust. Of course, the issue I'm sure that will come up is how do you make them bulletproof? Mm. And that sounds like that's Bob's world. Certainly that may be another seminar be part two. Right. We're talking about OBRA trust. We're talking about special needs trust. We're talking about distinguishing um, how you protect a child who may become disabled after the divorce or the special needs child who may be developmentally disabled from day one. So there are a lot of different variables to be discussed. Bob, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, yeah, I think it would really be an interesting uh, seminar because you see all the risk when somebody creates trust, in particular whether um, when the parent or the guardian were to later get into their own financial troubles, it's, it's the issue of whether a creditor might try to break that trust in the, in that, the Illinois Fraudulent Conveyance Act. And I... Personally, from the feedback I've gotten from the people who are joining us, find that the family law attorneys real, never realized how complex it was. But more than that, I see this as the beginning of several seminars. Based on, I usually work off the, the feedback I get from my audience. And we do have a few seats left. But the idea that nobody really coordinates between the probate division, the trust divisions, and, um, you know, this financial world that we live in is so unstable for family law, valuations don't really mean what they used to. You know, we, we had a lot of paper value, and now we've got kids that really need services, and the families are don't have the, the funds. Yeah, real interesting. Very, very. So a lot of problems that um, that you point out there that 
I've sort of heard uh, through the grapevine myself, so grapevine rather. Um, so Nancy, I want to thank you for calling in to tell us a little bit more about the seminar. It's always good to hear it from the person who set it up directly. Well, we are excited. We have judges coming. We have lawyers coming. We have case managers coming, both in the audience and on our panels. And so- you'll have a litigation publicist there. Oh, you're coming! Oh, of course. I wouldn't. I have to. I have to move. I, I probably have to move things around. But probably double and triple booked. But um, of course, I'm coming. I wouldn't. I wouldn't miss it. So. Well, Nancy, we always look forward to hearing from you, Nick, because you always give people something to discuss very heated. <laughs> I'll take that in the back. I don't want to call it controversial, <laughs> but the last time you talked about, um, oh, I won't go into what it was, but you know what it was. Yeah, well, you know what? It's good to uh, get people talking, and um, that's exp- dialogue is the where we learn. And so often, uh, many of us uh, live with, you know, as we were talking with Bob here about misconceptions about red flags for audits and things like that. It's a good thing to start dialogue, and people, it's you know, this collective consciousness is what moves us all forward. What people seem to like about our company, which is called Leaded Limited. It stands for Legal Education Dialogue and Discussion. Everybody in the room, whether they're a presenter or part of the audience, has something to say, and we expect them to say it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bob, you should come. We'd love to meet you. I, I'm not in domestic relations, but it certainly sounds like an interesting seminar. Well, one of the things I find is our family lawyers realize this is over their head, and they need good people out in the field. Networking is one of our key components. Have a good evening, gentlemen. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks, Nancy. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye. All right. So, Bob, just we were talking about uh, your friend, the doctor, and uh, sorry to uh, jump in the middle there. Uh, Nancy called in when she was able between appointments. The IRS, of course, disallowed all of the losses and said they had to be taken as passive losses. But to get to the point of the story, we then took an appeal, and at appeals, they have authority to split the baby in half. So we literally ended up, after a long dispute, we pointed out that the client, that particular client did medical test, and he was not meeting with the patients. He actually read slides on cancer, and that he might have more time. Because we raised a hazard of litigation, the IRS eventually settled to allow us half the expense because their authority when they're settling is to say, what is the chance a judge might accept this in court? And if they think it's 50-50 that a judge might believe it in court, they can then say, we'll give you half the deduction or half the expense. And that's literally what happens. So the point for taking an appeal, sometimes my client lacks good records. And so the auditor says it's disallowed in full, but when we go to an appeal, many times we work something out. And then the last thing to bring up on this is if you can't settle with the auditors where 1.6 million audits take place between correspondence and face-to-face audits, or with the 140,000 cases that go to appeals each year, every person who gets audited, if they don't reach agreement at those levels, gets a notice of deficiency giving them 90 days to go to tax court. And so we will bring an action in tax court. It's a court of limited jurisdiction. There's only 19 tax court judges for the country. They ride the circuit. They come to Chicago about four times a year. And of the cases filed in tax court last year, the vast majority were settled. There were about 29,000 cases that eventually went to court altogether in tax disputes. And of those, only 800 were tried to a trial. The rest were settled with the IRS lawyers. So the point being, we start with 1.6 million audits, and we end up with 800 cases having to go to trial. Hmm. So that's pretty. those are pretty good odds. Yes, they're great odds. Almost every case we file is settled. Last year I filed 60 cases or so. We settled all of them. The year before we filed about 60 cases again. In that in that year we had to try four cases. So some years we have better odds of settling than others. But 
um, most cases do reach a resolution. All right. Well, Bob, I want to thank you for your time today, and um, on behalf of our audience, thanks for sharing such good and valuable information. I hope that no one ever needs to call you, but if they do, how do they get in touch? Uh, my number at Arnstein Lear is 312-876-6927. I maintain Arnstein Lear has its own website, arnstein.com. You can find us, and then I have my own website where I have about 3,000 pages of excerpts from my various books and my own writings, and that's at mckenzielaw.com. So um, either way. All right. Thank you again for your time. I do appreciate it. I'd also, like, I'd also like to thank our uh, listeners and guests for tuning into this episode of Law Talk Radio, brought to you by ProServe PR Marketing, with support from Chris McCarthy from Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and disability insurance policies. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Law Talk Radio episodes are programmed to entertain and bring our legal industry professionals, consumers, and guests the tips, tools, and news they can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers. With our guests and listeners located from coast to coast, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. Again, this is Nick Augustine for Law Talk Radio, and as always, I thank you for your time.